although we are still technically in the first letter to John, of John, we are taking a few weeks to talk about eldership. Think about leaders in the local church. This is crucial. There are certain topics, certain issues we have to talk about every single year, this being one of them. We have to know what it means to be an elder. We have to know who it is who is called to lead, to lovingly lead the local church. And so we'll finish this next week and then we'll resume our time in First John, which I cannot wait to get back to, but this has been good for my soul. Trust it's been helpful for you also. But I want to begin by saying that even though violence is rightly condemned as a terrible attribute that no one should possess, I will say this. Violence is next to godliness. Violence is next to godliness. It sounds crazy and counterintuitive, but it's, it's true. A godly man, you understand, is a violent man. In fact, I'll push it even a bit further. The more godly, the more violent a man is, the more godly he becomes. Again, that sounds crazy. And, and the, the issue is, for any of this to be true, it completely depends on who or what a man is violent against. And if the object of a man's violence is the sin that lurks in his very own soul, then this is completely true, that a man of godliness is a man of violence. The more violent one is with the sin that lurks in their own heart, the more godly and Christ-exalting they become. Just even push it a little bit further, make it a little more personal to you, the more vicious and brutal you are with the sin that lurks in your own heart, the more godly and Christ-exalting you become. Let's be honest with you, most Christians are not prepared for this. Not even close, not by a long shot. I mean, I certainly was not when I first became a Christian at 19 or 20 years old. You see, many people, when they sign on the dotted line, as it were, to be a Christ follower, they have no idea that what they are signing up for is a lifelong fight to the death. Not with some enemy that's lurking out there somewhere, or with a Netflix corporation, or some image on a plasma screen but with the monster and the enemy that lurks even within our very own souls. See, the reality is that when it comes to warfare against the sin in our own hearts, the more savage we can be, the more sanctified we become. You remember the quote, a holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling these are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. J.C. Ryle, he that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. So this is completely true. That a godly person is a violent person. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because the elders of a local church should be the most violent people of all. In fact, let's put it this way, the Christ-exalting effectiveness of a church or the Christ-defaming failure of a church is profoundly dependent upon how violent the elders of that local church are with the sin that resides in their very own souls. Because church health, you understand, is inseparably connected to elder health. And you see, that's just the thing. The reason why 
Titus is in your Bibles, the reason why Paul wrote it and folded it up and put it in an envelope and licked it and sealed it and sent it to Titus on the island of Crete is because what this is, you understand, is the blueprints for a healthy church. And although there's loads of things Paul says you've got to have to be a healthy church, one of the things he says, in fact, the first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders. And Paul calls them elders. And to be an elder, you need to be qualified. And in chapter 1, Paul gives 15 qualifications divided up into three categories that a man must be to be blameless. And this morning we get to the second category in which an elder must be blameless. And the category is, believe it or not, the sins that a man must put to death. Because this morning we're going to see five sins, five targets that a man and an elder in particular must put to death with holy violence. And yet you need to understand that the greatest mistake that you could make here this morning would be to assume that because this is an elder-only passage, that therefore it has elder-only application and elder-only relevance, which isn't true at all. It says profound relevance to every single person sitting in the room. Why? Because the question, what do elder qualifications matter to me if I'm never going to be an elder, is kind of like asking, what does it matter if the pilot flying the plane is drunk or not if I'm never going to be a pilot? See how crazy the question is? The ones in whose hands you place the care of your soul, which is what elders do, by the way, had better be spiritually qualified to do so. To put it another way, they do what they do so that you will do what they do also, because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. So here we go. The inspired resume of biblical elders, and here's where we're going this morning. This morning, I want you to see from our text the second of three categories. The second of three categories in which biblical elders must be blameless if a church ever hopes to change the world. That's not overdramatic. That's a real thing. Though That's what's at stake here. We're going to look at the second of three categories in which elders must be blameless if a church ever hopes to change the world because church health is inseparably connected to Elder health, elder health. So we've seen the first category. Let's look at the second. Here it is. The second category in which an elder must be blameless. Number two, an elder is blameless precisely because of the sins that he puts to death. An elder is blameless because of the sins that he puts to death. And in verse 7, Paul names them. He identifies the five targets of sin that an elder must put to death with holy violence. And yet he begins back in verse 5. Look what he says. Speaking to Titus, For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete, that you would set in order the things which remain, and that you would appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And there's the operative word. Appoint elders, Titus. But the question is, who is qualified to be an elder? And in verse 6, he describes who they are. Look what he says. A man can be an elder if he is blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Well, that's unfolded and explained by the following qualifications. He goes on. A blameless man is a husband of one wife. Having, and again, we talked about this two weeks ago. I think that's not believing, but faithful. Having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For it is necessary, the overseer, to be blameless as the steward of God. And here it is, verse 7, the five targets to put to death. He must not be arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not quarrelsome. And last but not least, he must not be greedy 
for shameful gain. There's the five. The five targets, the five sins that an elder must put to death with holy violence. We're going to take these one at a time. We're going to define them. We're going to give the root beneath them. And then what we're going to do is we're going to give the Christ-exalting cure to them. So the first target, the first target that an elder and everybody else must put to death, number one, an elder must not be arrogant. An elder must not be arrogant. And Paul doesn't explain why here, but we can only guess why arrogance is first on the list, can't we? Not necessarily because it's worse than the other sins on the list, but probably for leadership type guys who are called to lead other people, it is probably the easiest sin to be infected by. Speaking for a friend. And yet the question is, why is this on the list? Why must a pastor-elder not be arrogant? And the answers to that question are legion and obvious, aren't they? The reason why arrogance is on the list is because an arrogant elder, you understand, is an overbearing elder. He's a harsh elder. He's an abrasive elder. He's heavy-handed and hypercritical, which means he shouldn't be an elder at all. An arrogant elder is an argumentative elder. He's independent. He's self-willed. He's a terrible listener. He's unsympathetic. He wants independent autonomy to do whatever he pleases with zero accountability. He's easily angered, extremely defensive. He beats and bruises the sheep. He's blind to his own sin, slow to confess his faults, assumes the best about himself and the worst about other people. In the end, what an arrogant elder is, is a glory thief driven by a passion to feel exalted. In fact, you could put it this way, what an arrogant elder is, is an anti-John the Baptist. He must become great, even if Christ must become small. So the question is, elders, future elders and everybody else, do you see any signs of arrogance in your life? Are you overbearing? Are you harsh? Are you abrasive? Are you heavy-handed and hypercritical? Are you argumentative? Are you independent? Are you self-willed? Are you a terrible listener? Are you unsympathetic? Do you want independent autonomy to do what you please with zero accountability? Are you easily angered? Are you extremely defensive? Are you blind to your own sin? Are you slow to confess your faults? Do you assume the best about yourself and the worst about other people? Because that's exactly what it looks like to be arrogant. And yet the real question is, have you ever considered what the root of arrogance is? I mean, the symptoms are easy enough to see, but if you reach your hand down into the slimy sewer of the human heart to see what's causing the arrogance. I mean, what kind of grimy mass do you think you're going to find? This leads me to the question, what is the Christ-defaming root of arrogance? And if you have your notes, you can see it. The long answer is, the long answer to the root of arrogance is that to be arrogant is literally to be insane. It is. This is certifiable insanity. Arrogance means that we are off our theological medication of grace and that we have drifted back into the devil's disease of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. This is textbook insanity. This is psychosis of the soul. 
If we are proud and arrogant, then that means that we have literally lost our grip on reality. We've not only forgotten who we really are, we have forgotten who God really is. Arrogance means that we have forgotten our place in the universe. We are created. He is the creator. We are temporal. He is eternal. We are unclean. He is the holy one. We can't go more than a few days without food or water. We need sleep. We sin multiple times a day, maybe an hour. We smell. We use the bathroom. And at one time, we were closer to hell than the very chairs on which we are sitting. And had God not chosen us in eternity past and awakened us by sovereign grace, we would have never believed and been saved. That is who we are. That's reality. And that's the long answer. The short answer is is that if we are arrogant, then that means that we have forgotten two earth-shattering realities. One, we have forgotten the supremacy of God. And number two, we have forgotten the sovereign grace of God. And in fact, those two things right there, those are what I call the Christ-exalting cure for arrogance. The two-edged sword of the cure for arrogance is the supremacy of God and the sovereign grace of God. In other words, put it this way, if you're not very humble and yet you would really like to be, what are you supposed to do? Where do you even begin to tackle this issue? How do you topple the redwood of arrogance in our lives? And the answer is first, number one, to kill the root of arrogance, we have to force ourselves to remember the towering majesty of God who never had a beginning. That's how you win. You you contemplate the God who is all supreme, all sovereign, who never had a beginning. Because it's easy, easy to feel smug and superior when you compare yourself to other created beings. But when you compare yourself to the God who spoke galaxies into existence, who numbers the stars, who became a man, who calmed the sea with his voice, who was slain for sinners, who rose himself from the dead, who holds the universe into being and who will come again and rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem in his kingdom. When you contemplate him, there's just no room anymore for the supremacy of the self. Don't you see, to come down from our self-made thrones, we must crane our necks up to the towering majesty of God found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Because you can't have a high view of God that treasures Him as supreme and be self-exalting all at the same time. One of them must go. But second, second, nothing deflates an arrogant soul faster than by remembering the sovereign grace of God that saved you from eternal woe and despair. Nothing deflates arrogance faster than that. To think, to think, That every aspect of your salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice. To contemplate the great lengths to which God had to go to save you from eternal ruin and destruction. To consider your election. To consider your predestination. To consider the sin-bearing substitutionary death of Christ. To consider propitiation, justification. Adoption, reconciliation, redemption, 
and eternal life of everlasting and ever-increasing joy in the Trinity forever. When you considered that the only contribution that you had to your own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. Let's just say when you contemplate that, it becomes impossible to feel even a millimeter of superiority over another human being again. That's how you win. Which brings us to the second target. The second target that an elder must put to death. Number two, an elder must not be angry. An elder must not be angry. You can see it in verse 7. Paul says that elders must not be arrogant. And arrogant, and yet you notice, right on the heels of arrogance is anger. Is anger. Literally quick-tempered. Short-fused. Explode on impact. This is someone who's easily angered, easily provoked, easily irritated, easily enraged. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Why anger follows right on the list just behind arrogance. This is not a randomly generated list of shopping items. Oh, what comes next? Yeah, this will work. No, no, this is very deliberate. You see, Paul put them right next to one another because arrogant people, you understand, are easily angered people. See, whenever you smell the smoke of arrogance in your life, rest assured that the fires of anger are not that far behind. Whenever you see the fires of anger in your life, rest assured that the kindling of arrogance was already there to begin with. And it makes sense, doesn't it, why this qualification is on the list? It makes total sense. It makes sense because being quick-tempered is just so godless. Isn't it? It's just so unlike God's character. I mean, how many times do we read in the Old Testament that Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness? That He is patient? That He is long-suffering? That His kindness leads you to repentance? That He restrains the wrath that you and I deserve even at this very moment? This makes total sense that this is on the list because anger, you understand, is the gateway sin that leads to other more destructive sins. I'm sure you've seen these things in people's lives, maybe even in your life. The fires of anger make marriages distant and cold. Creates division in a culture of fear. Makes us fakey and hypocritical. It breeds suspicion and distrust. It leads to violence. Causes bitterness. It kills evangelism. It pollutes fellowship. It hinders prayer, destroys hospitality. It devastates families and in the end it devastates churches and makes them powerless for the great commission. Oh, the toxic power of anger unrestrained. Because sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and anger cause permanent damage. I suppose we all know what anger is. We all know what anger looks like. But the question really is, do we know what it is deep down that's actually driving the anger? Because if we can get a handle on what the root is, then we can get a handle on what the cure is. My question is, what is the Christ-defaming root of anger? In other words, if we are angry, what is it underneath, lurking beneath, that's driving the anger? And believe it or not, there are two hideous roots of anger just beneath the surface, driving our anger. Root number one. The root of anger 
that reveals itself in all sorts of ugly manifestations in our lives, the root of anger, get this now, is a fundamental belief that you deserve better than what you're getting. That you are entitled to something more than what you are receiving in that very moment. That doesn't mean that people just have the right to do whatever they want to you and you just have to take it. It just means that at our worst, our anger is rooted in an overinflated view of self-importance. There we are, sitting on our makeshift thrones, ruling our claustrophobic kingdoms of one, punishing anyone who violates the laws of our little kingdom. Make no mistake, that is the root of sinful anger. Which means, what do we do? What is the Christ-exalting cure to anger then? And the cure is, and harsh though it may sound at first, the cure to sinful anger is to remember, get this now, is that the only thing that we actually truly deserve And the only thing to which we are actually, truly entitled is eternal wrath and judgment forever. That's that's the only thing we really deserve. That's the only thing to which we're actually entitled. At the end of the day, we don't deserve better than that. We're not entitled to more than that. You see, we douse the flames of sinful anger when we remember that there is an empty space in hell that we should be occupying even at this very moment. And the only reason why we're not there now is because the Lamb of God endured that wrath in our place. Let's put it this way. The gospel logic that extinguishes the heat of anger is to remember that Jesus Christ saved us from the wrath that we most deserve and has granted to us the salvation that we least deserve. There's a second root to anger. And the second root is this. Anger is always, always, always a reaction of idolatry. It's a reaction of idolatry, which you're going to hear a lot about this morning. In other words, anger is a, actually helpful in its own way in the sense that it is a profoundly accurate barometer of, that indicates the presence of idols lurking in the heart. You understand anger is a defense mechanism designed to protect that which is most valuable and precious to you. Let's put it this way, the great pit bull of anger, the great guard dog of anger only bites and attacks when something threatens what is most precious to it. Which means the cure then, the Christ-exalting cure, let's call it that, the Christ-exalting cure to sinful anger is to remember, this is very important, the cure to sinful anger is to remember that all of the fulfillment that we were hoping to find in the idols that we adore can only actually be fulfilled by Jesus Christ Himself. That seems overly simplistic, but it's totally true. That the supreme worth, that the supreme value, that the supreme beauty of Jesus Christ puts the pleasure and the glory found in our idols to absolute shame. Isn't that exactly Paul's point in Philippians 3.8? But rather also I regard all things to be lost. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I suffer the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, the point is, 
the way to be liberated from the idols that seem so captivating to our souls is to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Because when you kill the idols that reign in the heart, you crucify the anger that seeks to protect them. That's how you win. Which brings us to target number three. A third target that an elder needs to put to death. Number three, an elder must not be addicted. An elder must not be addicted. And by addicted, listen carefully, I mean willingly enslaved. I mean super selfish and obsessed with one's own appetites and cravings to the extent that they don't give a rip about anybody else, because that is exactly Paul's chief concern in verse 7 when he says that an elder must not be a drunkard. Or maybe your version says addicted to wine. And literally the term means one who lingers long by the wine. Pictures of a person who never leaves the bar, always has to have a glass of wine in the hand, always has to be at one's reach. The term describes a person who is willingly mastered and preoccupied by alcohol. And, and we need to be absolutely clear here, just so everyone's, everyone knows, that alcohol is not in and of itself inherently sinful. We know that, right? In fact, in fact, I've mentioned this before, which is so, I just get tickled by this verse. Psalm 104 verse 15 says, actually says that wine is a gift of God's providence to make man's heart glad. That's an unbelievable verse. And what it means, what it means is that even the physiological effects of alcohol to the degree that they do not impair your judgment in any way is a gift of God to be enjoyed. Having said that, however, one verse commending alcohol as a gift is far outweighed by the texts that warn against the dangers of drunkenness. In fact, drunkenness is so serious that twice, twice, Paul included on a list of sins that if not repented of, crucified, and killed will prevent you from entering the kingdom of God itself, which means some people go to hell with a wine bottle in their hands. And it explains exactly why this qualification is on the list, doesn't it? It's on the list not only because, A, it's an easy sin to fall into and almost impossible to break free from, but B, it's on the list because elders work with people. And people oftentimes with very deep and crushing problems in their lives. And you see, if an elder has a drinking problem, he's going to be largely, if not totally, ineffective in his ministry because you understand to be a pastor needs requires 100% functionality in your mind. This is a thinking man's game, a counseling man's game, a theologizing man's game. Elders, you understand, are surgeons of the soul who need profound precision with the sword of the Spirit. They need every faculty at maximum capacity to feed the flock and shepherd the sheep and lead the lamb. That's exactly why this is on the list. And yet having said that, you could probably tell, beer isn't necessarily the issue for Paul here, is it? It's actually not. Actually, drunkenness, if you think about it, is just one of a thousand different manifestations of a deeper heart issue that Paul's actually concerned about. Drunkenness or getting high is just the most obvious one. 
See, what he's after here, the issue is not so much the object to which one is enslaved, so much as it is the deeper heart issue that allows one to be enslaved. Could be anything. Could be drugs. Could be food. Could be TV. Could be video games. Could be shopping. Could be money. Could be homosexual activity. It could be work. It could be exercise. I mean, you name it. By whatever a person is dominated, that is the thing to which they are enslaved and for which they will sacrifice everything. You see, the hideous issue lurking beneath that Paul is so concerned about is in the end, you can guess what it is, it is idolatry. Or more precisely, self-idolatry. Or even more precisely still, what Paul is describing here, get this now, is an idolatrous, self-indulgent pursuit of one's private cravings and appetites at the expense and exclusion of everybody else. That's the issue. Isn't this exactly what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? It's exactly what happened. The whole future human race hung in the balance. The whole future human race could have gone to hell in that moment, and they didn't give a rip about that. The only thing that mattered was their private gratification hanging on the tree. And they were going to have it, no matter the cost to themselves or to anybody else. Which makes me want to ask you, elders, future elders and everybody else, do you see anything like this in your life? What I mean is, do you see the idolatrous, self-indulgent pursuit of your own private cravings or appetites at the expense or exclusion of everybody else? That's what Paul's after here. I mean, maybe it's not getting drunk necessarily, but what I'm asking is, do you see some growing obsession in your life? Something in the shadows that's beginning to master you, control you. Some secret pleasure that you are pursuing instead of or in the place of God. I mean, maybe it's not getting drunk necessarily, but maybe is there something in your life that has a python grip on your life and you have no idea how you're going to claw your way out of it because I just want you to know that if you know Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, there is hope for you. There's hope for you if you are in Christ. Destruction and devastation does not have to be the finish line. You don't have to crash and burn in your life. You you see, if you are in Christ, you must not only be, but you don't have to be enslaved to anything. Do you know why? Because Alcoholics Anonymous, they have their 12-step program, but you see, the Son of God has a one-step solution. You know what it is? It's not anything you haven't heard before. It is His death in your place. That's the solution. That's exactly what it is. His sin-bearing, wrath-conquering, power-severing death in the place of sinners is the, is the transaction by which you have access to everything predestined by the Father. Listen very carefully to Galatians 2.20. This is so crucial for our lives and our sanctification. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ 
lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Do you hear what he said? That's an unbelievable verse. You see, when you put your faith in Christ in that moment, you died. And what you got instead was not a new, improved version of you, but the living Christ himself living in and through you. What you got was a new heart. What you got was a new master who doesn't merely tell you what to do, but gives you the command, gives you the power to do what he commands. Never forget what I'm about to say here. It's so crucial, so basic, but so fundamental to our lives. The finished work of Christ is the one-stop shop that not only helps us dodge the bullet of hell, but also provides all the power we need to triumph over the suicidal pleasures of sin. That's how we win. Target number four. Target number four, which an elder must put to death. Number four, an elder must not be aggressive. An elder must not be aggressive. Look again at verse seven, what Paul says. He says, it's necessary for the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard. And here it is, an elder must not be quarrelsome, contentious. Maybe your version says violent. And literally, that Greek term comes from the word to strike, to throw a punch, which means this is the ancient Greek word for a bully. This person here is aggressive, confrontational, contentious, argumentative. This kind of person doesn't win disagreements with precise reason and cool logic, but rather by anger, by manipulation, by intimidation. This kind of person is inflexible unbending, absolutely loves control. Do you know anyone like that? Are you someone like that? This kind of person is harsh and abrasive. And understand this, they will only tolerate the eager, open-armed embrace of all of their ideas and they, not, they will not be questioned or disagreed with. This is the eggshells kind of person. The walking minefield that you dare not cross. This is the person who pouts, who gives the silent treatment. And you see some people, they have other names for this kind of person. Some people call them touchy or grouchy or prickly or cantankerous. But the biblical word for this person is this word. This person yells, argues, interrupts. Is super defensive, slams doors, punches walls, hangs up phones, uses all sorts of intimidation to get their way. And not only should a pastor not be this way, nobody should be this way. I mean, this is just so opposite of who Christ revealed himself to be, isn't it? I mean, don't get me wrong, Christ never, ever once backed down in the face of danger. Not once did he do that. He always spoke truth. He always confronted sin. He had knocked down, drag out theological disputes with the hypocrites, but never one time ever did he resort to physical intimidation. He was never a jerk. He was never harsh or abrasive or heavy-handed. Instead, he was merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He reasoned with people from the scriptures. Oh, oh, that we could be that way. 
And it's not hard at all to see the Christ-defaming root of being a quarrelsome person, is it? It's not hard at all to see it. Because a violent person, an aggressive person, you understand what it is, is that they are way too utterly persuaded of their own importance, aren't they? This person with their angry outbursts, adult-sized temper tantrums, their hypercritical spirit, they are bending. They are driven by unbending personal ambition to have things go the way they want them or you will pay the price. See, this kind of person, they love control because deep down they are afraid. Afraid to lose the thing that they actually probably love more than Christ. So what this does is raise the question, elders, future elders and everybody else, do you see anything like this in your life? Are you a violent, aggressive, contentious, or quarrelsome person? Is it your instinct to inflict violence on something or someone or the cat when they don't get your way? I love cats, by the way. But if I said I have never inflicted some kind of violence on my cat, I would be lying. Did I say that out loud? I confess that out loud. The question is, are you the eggshells kind of person? Are you the walking minefield? Do you love having control over people and situations? Which means, the, the question I'm really asking is, are you way too utterly persuaded of your own importance? That is the issue. That is the issue. And you see, what this does then is raise the issue for us. What it does is expose for us the Christ-exalting cure for being a quarrelsome, contentious person. And the cure for being quarrelsome, quarrelsome, violent, and contentious is not medication or therapy, but it is, get this now, it is to be staggered by who you are and what you have in Christ. That's how you overcome being a quarrelsome and contentious person. You be staggered by who you are and what you have in Christ. Which sounds strange that that would be the solution, but it is. The question is, do you know, do you know what it is that you have in Christ? See, you are justified in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. You are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God through Christ. You are chosen and predestined in Christ. You are forgiveness of all sins, a ransom from the slavery of sin in Christ. You have been seated with the heavenly places in Christ. You are reconciled to the Father in Christ. You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And literally like 50 other verses in the New Testament describe everything that Christ accomplished for people like us. Do you see the point? When all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished begins to mean more to you than you mean to you, then and only will you stop trying to make everything about you. And by that, I mean me. See, what we must do, what I must do, is pour over the letters of Paul. Any New Testament book would do just fine, but pour over the letters of Paul and make a list of all the things that it says we have in Christ because when we become exhilarated with what's on that list, then and only then will we be merciful and gracious and patient and humble people. That is how you win. Which leads us to target number five. 
Target number five, that an elder must put to death. Number five, an elder must not be avaricious. An elder must not be avaricious. It had to start with A to make it fit with the other words. But avaricious is just a fancy schmancy way to say greed. Greed and materialism. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, it's necessary the overseer to be blameless as a steward of God. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not quarrelsome. And here it is, he must not be greedy for shameful gain. And what's so ironic about money, and I'm sure you've thought about this, is that all it is is just scraps of paper and tiny pieces of metal. That's it. There's nothing special about the materials themselves. There's nothing magical in the, in the materials themselves. They're just a symbol of power, a symbol of value. Those little pieces of paper and tiny pieces of metal hold a terrifying, curious power of the human soul, don't they? Maybe even over your soul. See, money has this reverse kryptonite effect where it does not weaken but strengthen the desires for more and more and more and more. And the more you feed those desires for money, the more hungry and greedy they become, like a, like a black hole in space. The love of money consumes its victims. It sucks them in and crushes them into non-existence. That's not an over-exaggeration. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, he says, those who love money, those who have, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And again, we have to understand, money is not inherently evil, but it is inherently lethal if used incorrectly. You see, if you have a wallet in your pocket, you're sitting on a time bomb and your heart is the detonator. And the term that Paul uses here is really interesting. It's actually two words mashed together. Aiskras, which means shameful. Kerdas, which means gain. Aiskrakerdas, shameful gain. And what it describes is not not only greed, but also financial and material gain obtained in such a way that if it were exposed to the public how you got it, would bring unbelievable shame and scandal to your life. That's the issue. And obviously, the, the most obvious issue is, is, you know, at the front and center is pastors. And the most egregious example are the health, wealth, and prosperity slime balls that we see on TV. They would be the most egregious example of this. Or I know of a guy who used to work for a large company that had its own gas pump on the premises of the company. And on weekends when no one was there, he would fill up containers full of the gas and sell it on the side as a profit. That would be das, shameful gain. That man is in prison right now, by the way. But there are other more subtle forms of shameful gain that don't necessarily include money, and they happen every single day. In fact, money isn't even necessarily the issue at all. See, there's all sorts of reasons why a man might want to become an elder. Could be desire for recognition, a hunger for applause and the accolades of men. Could be thirst for power, longings for popularity, love of control. If he's a particularly charming or good-looking guy, access to women. See, some men are attracted to pastoral ministry because it's an intellectually gratifying way to earn a living. You don't need a shovel. You don't need big muscles to preach. Some men are lazy and slothful, and they know that churches oftentimes lack accountability, and so they pursue ministry as a life of leisure. You see lots and lots of ugly possibilities here. 
But since money itself is the most obvious issue, I just want to ask you, do you see the love of money in your life? Do you see any signs of that in your life? Because if you did, how could you tell? Consumer debt? Probably. Spending what you don't really have and what you can't really afford? Most definitely. Being stingy and tight-fisted? Absolutely. Shopping or buying something new is a typical way to deal with stress, disappointment? Probably. Unwilling to do anything in ministry unless you are compensated for it? Most definitely. When you resent and despise people who have more than you? Absolutely. When no matter how much you have, you secretly feel and complain that it's never, ever enough? Most definitely. And when you are willing to sin or bend the rules, that is textbook, exhibit A, hand in the cookie jar, evidence that someone has been infected by the virus of greed. The question is, have you been infected by the virus of greed? Maybe the better question is, do you know the Christ-defaming root of greed? And it's not hard to see, is it? When you lift the rock of greed to see what it is that's slithering beneath, what you see there underneath the rock, you could guess what I'm about to say, what it is is a pile of idols. Actually, what it really is, is is a fascination with something that you actually find more beautiful and satisfying than Christ himself. But you see, the problem, the problem with the love of money is that although it is a terrific liar, it is a terrible lover. It claims to satisfy, but it never, ever does. You see, how greed works, how greed gets you to bite the bait is that it offers joy and satisfaction. But you see, to counter the claim of love of money is not to deny your longings for joy and satisfaction, but instead even to indulge your longings for joy and satisfaction in the one who alone can fulfill them. You see, Christ doesn't say no to joy and satisfaction. He only says no to the things that get in the way of true joy and satisfaction, which are found only in Him. So if you want to strangle and suffocate greed in your life, all you have to do is remember and recite these kinds of verses, which I'm about to read to you. And as I do, just want you to listen for them. And as I read these verses, I want you to listen for treasure, riches, and pleasure. Embedded in these verses are the secret to overcoming greed. Psalm 1611. It's a prayer to God. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Actually, I'll back up. It says, you will make known to me the path of life, the path of life, the meaning of life, which is In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. I heard fullness of joy, pleasures forever. In God. That'll overcome greed. Mark 10, 21. Christ to the rich young ruler. You've got everything. You've got everything a person could want. But one thing you still lack. Go and sell All that you possess and give to the poor and you will have, get this now, treasure in heaven, treasure in heaven and come follow me. Romans 10, 11 through 12. Everyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Here it is. Abounding in riches to everyone who calls upon him. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I am praying that you would know, get this, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 2.8, Saskatology. Paul says that in the coming ages, God will display the riches, the surpassing greatness of his riches in kindness on us in Christ Jesus. And last but not least, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What is the point? Why are you sharing with us these verses, Jared? Because, because that's how you overcome temptations for greed. You show greed who's boss by reminding your old soul that satisfaction can never be found in scraps of paper and tiny pieces of metal, but only in Christ and what he accomplished. That is the treasure. That is how you win. I close with this. Those are the five targets. And you can tell, you could tell that to be an elder not only means that you must be among the godliest men in the church, you must be among the godliest men on the face of the planet. Because you could be a king, you could qualify to be a king or a president or, or run a billion dollar company, but not be qualified to be an elder in the local church. Which means, which means these qualifications, they're not merely natural, they are profoundly supernatural. They're not things you obtain from attending a seminar. There are things you acquire by supernatural power. And they're not just for elders, they're for you. And elders got to have them to serve as elders, but you got to have them to show the world that Jesus Christ radically changes people's lives. Let's be a people who pursue Christ, waiting on Him for His supernatural power, being transformed and showing the world that lust and pride and anger and greed and materialism simply do not hold a candle to the life-transforming power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful grateful for lists like this, although they sting and hurt and bruise. Oh Lord, we don't necessarily choose these verses to be read at weddings or tell people that they're our favorite verses, but these are so instrumental and central to our lives, not just for elders, but for everyone, Lord. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart to be blameless. Give us a heart to live these things out knowing, knowing that holiness is happiness, that godliness is his joy. Lord, help us. Thank you for this time together in your word. In Christ's name.